0: The
1: Telegraph.
0: Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Sophie Coe, and this is Ukraine. The latest. Today, we speak about how Putin is manipulating the global food system into crisis, and hear from our reporter in the southern port city of
2: Odessa.
1: This hideous and barbaric venture... Of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians.
0: Every weekday afternoon we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our team's reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 20th of May, day 86. And today, I'm joined by the Telegraph's defense correspondent, Danny Sheridan, our economics reporter, Louis Ashworth, and we also hear from Colin Freeman, who's currently reporting for the Telegraph from Odessa in Ukraine. Yesterday Danny told the amazing story of how she found Andy her dog while she was out reporting in Ukraine and the efforts that she's gone to to bring Andy back so Danny actually brought Andy into the newsroom today for us all to have a cuddle with so I'll hand over to Danny and Andy.
3: Hello. Yes, I've currently got Andy sat on my lap right now as we record this. Um she's loving meeting all of her esteemed Telegraph colleagues and um I don't know if people probably aren't listeners probably aren't familiar with the layout of the telegraph but we have a circle where the editor sits and um she's obviously an ambitious girl because she went straight to the circle uh, to say hi to the editor so um but yeah she's um it's just lovely to have her here and have her in a safe country and um yeah it's um i'm grateful for all the support that um, the company has shown and bringing her back as well it's very sweet Oh, thanks, Danny. Um,
0: I think we'll pass to you first for the latest updates over the last 24 hours. Um, can you give us a sense of the biggest stories that have been um, going down?
3: So in um, his address, his nightly address yesterday, President Zelensky basically declared the Donbass region um, destroyed. He said it was hell. And that wasn't an exaggeration. Um, he said that is genocide he's reiterated that and that there's absolutely no military explanation um for what russian russia are doing um he described it as just um a deliberate attempt to kill as many ukrainian people as possible um and not just the people but to destroy houses and social facilities and enterprises and um basically just devastate society um as ukraine knows it um so that was pretty shocking and it will be interesting to hear from um, Colin if we can get him on the line what the sense is in Odessa because a lot has been coming out regarding the need to blockade um, the port there um, in order to, to help with the um, exportation or, of, of wheat and grain. Um, we know that Ukraine is considered Europe's breadbasket, um, but at the moment lots of grain grain. Is just sitting in warehouses rotting because it can't um, physically leave the country because of this war. Um, Other news that came out overnight was um, the number of soldiers from the um, Mariupol Azbostol, sorry, steel factory, um, who have been taken in as Russian prisoners. that's obviously quite terrifying news. Um, the whole ploy um, by Putin was to say that it was denazifying Russia, um, Ukraine um, and that was his justification for this invasion. Um, and now state media are reporting that um, it had taken uh, 89 injured soldiers who um, had Nazi links and that they were now going to be probed. Um, and they have been plucked from uh, Mariupol. Um, So this kind of, it just um, further feeds into the narrative that Putin has been projecting, that this is all part of him um, being the saviour for the Ukrainian people from Nazis, which um, is something he he isn't willing to drop. And he's obviously got um, state media now um, continuing to perpetuate that line. Um, So I'd say those are kind of two of the the big stories. But also it is um, just to hear Zelensky talk about an area being completely destroyed and describing it as hell and not an exaggeration um, really hits home because even in the areas that the Ukrainians have succeeded in pushing the Russian fighters away, um they have still destroyed these regions these areas to such an extent that it is going to take years to ever bring them back to even a kind of semblance of what they once were so um you know, I, I when he says this is not exaggeration at all, well, yeah, I completely can see that. I mean, even having just been on the ground and gone back into the liberated areas, I mean, it's just they are just building sites effectively now. So it's going to be um, a really long road for Ukraine to to keep rebuilding and, and bringing itself back to, you know, functioning in the way it did before this all began.
0: And I would recommend listeners, if they haven't, to tune into our episode yesterday, where um, Roland Oliphant, who's also in the ground in Ukraine, talked a lot about um, the Donbass region that's um, been described by Zelensky today as hell. And he gives a very thorough account of the history of the region and how it's kind of been battered over and over again. Um, Danny, I also wanted to ask you about a story that we've got online today. Um, the medic in Mariupol who has released footage that seems to show a kind of unbelievable um, strength of um, power getting through 15 Russian checkpoints. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
3: I think that that story just really emphasises the kind of resilience of the Ukrainian people um, you know, coming against 15 checkpoints, coming against odds at every twist and turn. And yet um, being able to to succeed in helping people um, is kind of just uh, it's symbolic of, of the whole Ukrainian um, attitude throughout this war. That even though they're, they're up against everything, everything is against them and. Um, and yet, they can just continue to power through and succeed um, is is really remarkable.
0: Definitely. Um, I wondered if we could pass on now, Danny. You mentioned that Colin has been out in Odessa. Now, Colin is here to join us. Um, can you give us a sense, Colin, of what it's been, what it's like in Odessa, bearing in mind the this weaponization of the global food supplies that's going on there?
1: It feels slightly odd being here at the moment. The sun is shining. Um, Odessa, which is normally a a holiday resort as well as being a big port, has the feel of a kind of Black Sea Riviera at the moment. There are even people out on the beaches and so on. Um, But down at the main port, um, uh, which is one of the biggest on the Black Sea, if not the biggest, and the the main um, uh, conduit through which Ukraine exports all its um, agricultural produce, down there there is very little going on um the port uh, has not seen a ship depart since the start of the war in uh, on on february the 24th and as uh, daniel was just saying earlier um that means that vast amounts of grain um are piling up at the port i i think it's something like 20 million tons um have, have piled up there in the last 3 months to put it in perspective on on a normal day apparently Around three thousand um train car loads, as in like box train box cars of grain, arrive at the port every day, which are normally sent off around the world um That has not been happening, and the grain mountain is growing every day um There are concerns that it's rotting. Apparently, it's not rotting quite yet, although it may not be in quite the the best condition that it might otherwise have been. But certainly, if this blockade of the port continues, then that is going to be a concern. Of far more concern, though, is the fact that um, lots of people around the world, especially in some of the world's poorer regions, are not getting the grain that they need to make bread and other food.
0: And what did those who work in the port have to say about it I'm guessing many of their staff might have fled is it is it still functioning in any capacity at all or is it totally shut down
1: not really no we went to visit a shipping agent at his offices Um, his office was empty it normally has 112 staff the office next door to him another shipping agent's office was likewise empty Um, pretty much none of them have been doing anything in terms of port related business at all that doesn't mean to say they've been idle though a lot of them have been uh, trying to work out a way of re all the produce that normally goes out through the port via the road and rail links that lead uh, from Ukraine into Romania, Moldova and Poland um and they they are doing their best with that but they have their work cut out for a start the railways are um on a different gauge in ukraine to some of the ones in europe so that is a major problem um it takes something like three weeks apparently to unload one train full of grain um, from one uh, railway gauge and transfer it onto a train for another one um And the the estimates were really that something like, I think, of the 250 million tons of food exports or or general exports that Ukraine produces every year, 160 million go out via the sea um, and 90 million go out via the the land. Uh, You can imagine that trying to you know add another 100, 160 million uh via the land it's just not going to be that easy one shipping agent i spoke to made the point that we we don't have the infrastructure and even if we did none of the countries that we're trying to get into have the infrastructure um plus it's not the end destination either most of this stuff is destined for the middle east and and, and, and africa
0: so you've touched on that there but what areas of the world will this have the gravest impact on is it is it the african nations because obviously in the west we've got rel- we've got backups we've got a relative uh, kind of there's other plans whereas in in those countries like africa i'm guessing they're pretty dependent on
3: ukrainian grain can the, I actually the... interject here? Just that I was speaking to Tobias Elwood, the chairman of the Defence Select Committee this morning, and he was referencing the direct impact that this grain problem um will have on the cost of living in the UK. Um so he was saying there's a lot of um <coughs> there's there's a lot of thought uh-huh. that
1: oh, hello? Hello? Sorry, Sorry, guys, we've just got a fire alarm going off. Okay, well, see, this is the
3: reality of um, war reporting on the ground is that you will be trying to conduct an interview and then an air raid siren goes off. Um, So um, (laughs) solidarity with Colin right now. Um, But I was just saying that um, it's interesting how um, that... You know, M- MPs here are, are literally referencing what is happening with um, the inability to export grain in Ukraine to the cost of living here. So um, he was saying that a lot of the focus is on what's happening in North African countries. But um, it is also very much something that, that will affect um, the situation here that we're seeing. The cost of living is rising significantly.
0: Thanks, Danny. And yeah, solidarity with you, Colin. Hope you're okay. Um, I wondered now whether it's a good time to pass over to Louis for the economic side of this. You've just touched on the cost of living, Danny. Louis, could you give us a sense of um, just how this emerging crisis has impacted prices and what the impact we could see in terms of stockpiling or um, the reactions of countries globally?
2: Hi, Sophie. Sure. And thank you for having me on again. So this is affecting a huge amount of the world. So the United Nations estimate on how big the impact is, is it's about 1.7 billion people across 100 countries that are in some way having their, having their prices affected by what's going on in Ukraine. So that's obviously energy is a big part of that. Um, commodity prices in general are a big part of that. And food is a huge part of it. As Danny said earlier, ukraine and and the sort of adjacent area of Russia is one of the bread baskets of the world it is you know hugely arable land it's been a massive producer of crops going back centuries and so it's really integral to uh to the world's supply of grain and obviously that's important for europe where it's more important for than anywhere is uh, is some parts of the middle east and north africa so for instance lebanon uh, imports about 80 percent of its of its wheat from from ukraine uh, moldova about 80 percent several countries like qatar pakistan indonesia all hugely rely on on those those ukrainian exports and uh, will also be relying relying a lot on 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 exports from russia as well Wheat, I would say, is probably the most interesting part of this. So we've seen wheat prices. There's a few different ways to look at wheat prices. There are different markets for wheat. Um, Milled wheat listed in Paris, maybe one of the most relevant ones, is up about 47% this year. Um, If we look at prices in Chicago, they're up about uh, more than 50% at the moment. Um, And in some areas, you will be seeing higher prices than that. I mean, those are kind of... um, broad aggregates of pricing and you'll see more more acute action occurring in certain places um wheat, as i said is it, a really big one it's so integral i mean think about the number of things that you eat that involve wheat uh, obviously bread being the number one um you know it's a staple of food across the world one of the most worrying stats we've heard recently was um uh, sarah menka who runs an analysis uh, an agricultural analysis firm called grow intelligence and she was um she was speaking to the united nations security council overnight and she said she thinks there's only about 10 weeks worth of wheat for human consumption left in global stockpiles, which um, is, is about 50% less than most governments have been predicting that there was. It's, it's, a, very, it's a very worrying statistic. Um, she said this isn't cyclical, this is seismic. It's a once-in-a-generation occurrence that can dramatically reshape the geopolitical era. And you do uh, you're obviously... We've seen in the u k these cost of living pressures spilling out um the amount of disruption they can cause, the large amount of political pressure that the government is under at the moment to act on this, but the consequences are going to be you know even more severe if you're one of the, if you're in one of those countries that are even more reliant than we are on on uh, or even more at the mercy of of uh disruptions to the supply than we are. um If you cast your mind back about a decade ago to the Arab Spring, a core part of the Arab Spring was the food crisis that was going on at that time in the world. And you know, at, at the moment, we're only beginning to see the beginnings of the disruption this could cause. The obvious place to look is Sri Lanka, where um, Sri Lanka was already in a pretty dire economic situation before the invasion of Ukraine. But it's pretty clear that some of the disruption that's caused has been enough to essentially um, tip the country into chaos. I mean, the, the, they've had one government collapse, they're defaulting on their on their sovereign debt, and there are sort of protests on the street and, and warnings about starvation. So we don't have to look far in the world or far back in history to see just how how big the consequences can be once you start to see this kind of alarming food price inflation.
0: And in reaction to this, are we going to see countries stockpiling? Is it going to get more um, isolationary, do you think, or are are kind of the the big aid organisations putting plans in place to stop that happening?
2: plans are being put in place but it's always a it's always a difficult thing to do because you can't just create more wheat out of nowhere if you know it's it's even in in years that are less disrupted than this one wheat supply is hugely contingent on weather conditions in different countries and how different harvests perform and that's actually a point i'll get onto in in a second um in terms of stockpiling it's it's somewhat hard to tell in the broad. I I think we're suspecting that we're going to see more countries try and have some kind of import controls. So the most noted one that we saw recently was, um, was India announcing that it was going to put export controls on wheat, uh, which it announced I think last Friday. Um, and that caused a very sharp sudden reaction in global wheat prices. I mean, the, the benchmark in Chicago went up about 6% in a single day, which is as much as it's allowed to go up in a single day. And the reason that was so remarkable is that india isn't even a hugely big deal in, in the global wheat market it doesn't export a lot of the wheat it produces but just that fear that there was going to be even more supply being taken out of the global system was enough to cause a sharp reaction and that shows just how tight things are at the moment i mean that there is that there is no slack whatsoever in in the global system really for for uh, any more supply to be lost um and the big danger here is that in the backdrop to all this i mean i'm, I'm sure you know, Putin didn't have a sort of 12-month weather forecast out when he decided to, he decided to sort of send his tanks into Ukraine. But it's, it's a bad year for wheat anyway. So, so we've seen um, conditions for growing have been very poor in, uh, in Europe, um, where particularly France is another big grower, and in the United States, which obviously is a sort of um, huge agricultural producer. Um, so we're expecting, and I've been speaking to sort of commodity analysts about this recently, we're expecting the harvest to be bad anyway. On top of all these other problems we're having, on top of Ukraine being taken out of the system, on top of these export bans that may be coming in, um, and the the worrying flip side of that is that one of the very few countries that is having a good wheat harvest this year is Russia. Russia has had good has had good uh, good conditions for growing. It's uh, it's recently <laughs> taken out a lot of the growing infrastructure of its nearest neighbour. Um, it's a very it's a very difficult situation, and we've seen increasingly these warnings that you know Putin is going to attempt to leverage uh, the influence that he has over global food supplies um, to, to you know, inflict further pain and ratchet up the geopolitical tension um, that, that's surrounded this conflict. And it looks increasingly like that's going to be a potentially big area, that there are a lot of countries that are going to be very reliant on Russia for wheat this year.
0: And in terms of the countries which are reliant, we've seen today a, a very different commodity, but we've seen Russia banning Finland from um or be Finland being cut off from Russian gas, how many countries can freely trade wheat with Russia, or is that totally shut down at the moment?
2: Uh, in in general, uh, wheat is is one that's sort of been left open. There are certain difficulties around the around the edge of this, basically because. Uh, you know, you may have a country that doesn't actually have sanctions in place on Russian wheat, but perhaps the shipping companies that would normally serve that country have unilaterally decided that they're going to start working with Russia. So it's never quite as simple as what governments are doing at a geopolitical level. Um, in the case of Finland, as you were saying there, Finland's become here the, the sort of third third victim of the sort of Russian cutoff that's coming in. So we previously saw um, a couple of weeks ago now, Bulgaria and Poland were both were both cut off um, because they refuse to pay for pay for Russian gas and rubles, and this all links back. I mean, one thing that we've been talking about a lot, um, uh, so of when I when I've come on, has been this idea of a, a Russian sovereign debt. Is there a looming Russian sovereign debt, and that's integral to this because Russia needs to continue receiving receiving rubles in order to kind of support support uh, the ruble at home, and it's very important to that element of Russia trying to sort of keep its um, keep it keep its its economy its economy working properly. Um, the Finland cutoff is—it's it, yeah—it's it, significant, it, but it feels a bit like nibbling around the edges. I mean, the, the the big important relationship is more than anything is 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 between Russia and Germany, but um, also um, very reliant near neighbours that Germany has, like such as Austria. Um, Finland only gets about five percent of its um, of its uh, energy from gas. So although it's although it's very reliant on Russia for that gas, it has other ways and means of of providing energy to itself. So it's not in in the case of Finland, it's not a particularly huge shock that this has occurred. Um, Finland is as a country quite well prepared to cope with it, and so it's it's more just indicative of this kind of. It's not a stalemate because things are moving, but just this sort of tense game of chess that's going on between uh, the Kremlin and and Brussels over, you know, how and when uh, is is Russia going to wean itself off Russian gas? How and when might Putin cut cut the EU off?
0: Thank you so much, Louis. Um, I don't know if we've got Colin back. I have just had a message from him. So hopefully... Um, he can be on the line. I was going to ask you about a stor- your story in the Telegraph this morning, related to the um, global food, emerging global food p- crisis, and the p- Putin's blockade on the ports, which suggests that US missiles could be the key to unblocking these blockades. Colin, are you able to tell us a bit more about that? And I'm. Hoping- yes, we're fine. By the way, those um, uh,
1: those. Air raid alarms, they go off quite often. Um, they don't generally mean that there's a plane flying right above you. It just means there's enemy aircraft detected in the in the general um, national or regional airspace. Um, and after a while, people tend to just ignore them. It's a bit like hearing fire alarms in your office or whatever. Um, so I've not been cowering down in a shelter or anything, um, nor has anybody else. Uh, to go back to the missiles, yes, um, U.S. officials have been hinting that um, they might provide um, missiles called harpoons or naval strike missiles to Ukraine. Um, These are missiles with a range of maybe about um, 200 miles or so. And as I understand, I think the idea would be that these would allow Ukraine to directly engage some of the Russian warships that are currently participating in the blockade of Odessa and other ports. Um, There is a risk with this, however, um, that uh, uh, it's one thing America or Britain supplying anti-tank missiles, things like that, that um, do make a lot of difference on the battlefield, but in terms of individual strikes on tanks or whatever, tend not to you know, attract that much attention from the Kremlin. Um, it, but if you start providing missiles of this sort that can take out an entire battleship, that is a bit of a different game. And uh, we saw the attention, for example, around the Moskva, the Russian battleship that was sunk about six weeks ago or so, If Russia started seeing that its um, flagship um, uh, naval assets were getting downed by US uh, supplied or Western supplied missiles, they might decide, hang on, um, this is NATO or the West getting directly involved in this conflict. And that could certainly ratchet things up. Um, There was a kind of convention during the years of the Cold War on both sides that uh, it was okay. to arm uh, for, say, Russia to arm um, the Vietnamese, sorry, the communist countries to arm, say, the Vietnamese or the Americans to arm the Afghan Mujahideen, uh, if, if they were fighting um, the opposite side, um, uh, that, that, that you could get away with. But it tended to be sort of small arms kind of stuff. These kind of big pieces of battlefield kit are a bit of a step into the unknown then again, th- these could be used kind of defensively and they could be used to sort of say, look, um, the Russian battleships need to get out of the way of our port or we will use them by a certain date or something. And effectively uh, put this in the in the Russian court, um, this ball in the Russian court, to see whether they would then uh, then respond. It does. Th- there's ways and means of deploying them so that it doesn't ratchet things up too much. But um it, 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 if it does happen, it's certainly quite a um, uh, an upping of the ante. Uh, I would have personally thought that they will also be making efforts to perhaps try and organise some sort of humanitarian food corridor. You would think that was not beyond the wit of people, given that they managed to do a humanitarian corridor from Mariupol down the road, getting um, civilians and fighters out um one would imagine there wouldn't be it wouldn't be beyond the wit of humankind to organize a, a world food program uh ship or a convoy or something like that so that essential grain supplies could be got out
0: thank you colin that was um very thorough and interesting um we've got one listener question that i want to get in before i know danny has to run and i'm sure colin you're um very busy in ukraine as well so the question is from oliver Um, We do like to answer your questions on this podcast and Twitter space, so please do um, DM me or The Telegraph or send us an email, podcasts at telegraph.co.uk, with your questions, and we can aim to get them answered. We do read all your messages. Um, This one from Oliver says... With Putin and Gerasimov getting involved in really low level tactical decision making, does this make them more culpable in any war crimes that are committed by troops they are directly or indirectly ordering? Um, I wondered, Danny, if you could give us a sense of just how involved maybe Putin is in these tactical decisions.
3: That's a really interesting question. It came off the back of a story we reported along with some of the other nationals earlier this week um, regarding a senior military source stating that Putin was so heavily involved in kind of tactical decisions that he was operating at um, a brigadier or or colonel level, um, which I think um, most importantly shows the level of paranoia that the president is experiencing to the fact that he is now having to get involved at low-level tactical operations, Um, it really implies that he is incredibly aware of how things are not going to plan for him and what he had set out for Russia to achieve. Um, And so he's having to micromanage um but on the point of whether or not they would now be more culpable for war crimes um i don't know that's uh you know there there's going to be lots of legal requirements within um kind of penalizing those that have been involved in such operations and it's difficult for me to say if it makes him more culpable um but i think that you know, war crime trials are going to be incredibly com- complex and long-running. And to be honest, I mean, as an outside observer, he has overseen this whole invasion. So um, regardless to whether or not he's been involved in the more minute detail, I think um, it goes about saying that he will fall foul of of um, having committed war crimes. So even if... Um, this element hadn't come to the forefront of what's happening on the ground, um, I still think he'll be um, highly punishable. I mean, he clearly has blood on his hands. Thanks, Danny. Um, okay, wh- finally,
0: I want to switch over to Louis. I've just got one question for you. Um, when you were here last on the podcast, um we spoke a lot about the possibility of a Russian default. Now, I wonder if, for our listeners, you could give us a sense of whether we're any closer to that default and what's changed since you were last here.
2: Well, Sophie, we're closer. We're not yet. We're not, we're not there yet, though. Um, so, since since we last spoke, um, there've been some small but important developments. Um, if you if you sort of cast your mind back to then, we were talking about the sort of possibility that the US could effectively engineer a Russian default. So what happened here is we have this exemption in place that basically allows Russia to continue making payments on its sovereign debt until the 25th of May, which uh, is, as as I look up at a calendar, is is now very, very close, you know, um, middle of next week. Um, If... If the U.S. were to drop that exemption uh, by failing to extend it, it would b- basically mean that uh, Russia is no longer able to make payments on its on its sovereign debt, and would then be on track for effectively a a a as I put it before a default by default. there would be no way of making those payments. They would they would then default about a about a month afterwards. Um, there's a couple of question marks around that. So the first one is the, the first tranche of bonds that Russia has to pay after this after this deadline. Is uh, next um, Friday the 27th. Um, Those bonds may be payable in rubles. It's a little bit of an open question at the moment. Um, If they are payable in rubles, Russia may uh, may be able to make payments. But uh, it's looking like either that tranche or a subsequent tranche that's coming in June is going to be the one that sort of brings Russia down. So the big question is still: Is the US going to pull pull the trigger by effectively allowing allowing this exemption to lapse? And we have pretty clear signals, not entirely clear, but pretty clear that they're going to so um janet yellen who's the u.s treasury secretary was in was in bonn in germany um early this week on wednesday um and she said somewhat cryptically for for those of us who who you know sort of following these things um the expect the expectation um was that uh it was time limited she said in regards to the to the exemption as you said, uh, I think it's reasonably likely that the license will be allowed to expire. So that's kind of where we are with it. It's, it's reasonably likely that the US is going to force Russia to default. As I said before, this is a bit—it's a bit academic at the moment um, because uh, the US can basically pull—you know—they they, they, they can play this card whenever they want. Um, so if they don't choose to do it this month, they might choose to extend the exemption for a, a few months further, and then they might—they might engineer this default. In the autumn, or in a month's time, or maybe in a year's time, I think the US is trying to hold this as a kind of threat over over Russia. Um, but it looks like at this stage, given Yellen's wording, that they do want to go ahead with it. In which case, it's just another kind of form of sanction. And we, we spoke before about how a default um, may not have a strong immediate effect on Russia because Russia isn't hugely reliant on borrowing from international markets, but it could have a strong effect uh, in the future when Russia is trying to rehabilitate itself and. More importantly, it could have a big effect if the sort of contagion and the reputational damage spreads from Russia as a state to Russian companies who are far more reliant on international debt markets and we 've just got a, an indication of how of how big that is today so um Bloomberg has crunched some numbers and they've said that um Russian companies have so far missed payments on about fourteen billion dollars worth of debt since um, since uh, about since over the last two months. So one of the big ones here was uh, Russian Railways, which is sort of big state rail company, was unable to was unable to make payments on its foreign debt, uh, or unwilling to. Um, lots of companies are in a similar situation. About forty percent of them are in the finance industry, which shows just how strong those particular financial sanctions have been. So there is this problem building up. Um, for now, there's been no uh, coherent, coordinated action from Western bondholders to. Uh, begin a legal case or begin any kind of major action to get that get that money back. This will end up in the courts eventually. Um, but for now, uh, we just see that this, this sort of default pile from Russian corporations is piling up. And um, though it's uncertain at the moment what that's going to mean, we can be quite sure that it's going to damage these companies' ability to to raise funds in the future. Um, as and when uh, Russia begins to try and rehabilitate itself in, 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 the, in the sort of global financial market, as, as seems likely it will eventually do. So some changes on on, 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 the, on the default front, some things haven't changed. We're still, we're still slightly waiting. I, I, if I had to hazard a guess, I would say Janet Yellen's language indicates that, that the US does want to bring about that default, in which case uh, the clock will probably start ticking at the end of next week. But um, we're still playing a bit of wait-and-see at the moment.
0: Ukraine, the latest, is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at thetelegraph.co.uk forward slash audio or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces, Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review, as this helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Alice Hearing.